Okay. So last week, uh, we looked at Judges chapter 16 uh, with the story of Samson. If some of you were here, you would remember. Uh, Today we'll be looking at the following chapters, uh, chapter 17 through 18. But before we look at the passages, by the way, we have worksheets in the back. Uh, If anyone needs a worksheet, we have one back there. Before we look at these passages, I want to quickly review what we've already covered. By the way, next week will be the final lesson in the series of the book of Judges. Uh, So I thought it would be important to review a little bit um, since we're coming to an end. Uh, The book of Judges is a historical account of Israel during the time of the death of Joshua in the late 13th century B.C. or mid-14th century, uh, which we see sort of taking place beginning with Joshua 24, 29. And it goes all the way through the appearance of Samuel, the last judge, by the middle of the 11th century, where we see it um, somewhere in 1 Samuel 1. So this was a period about uh, 300 years. And in this historical account, we see the beginning of God's promises for Israel at its initial stages of fulfillment, in a sense. The Lord promised Abraham and his descendants that they would have a land of their own. You see that in Genesis 12, also 13 and 17. And in the book of Joshua, Israel began to take possession of the land. But the way in which this would be fulfilled depended on Israel's obedience to God. And we see that they weren't careful to obey all that the Lord had commanded. And the result of it was a reoccurring apostasy of the Israelites. So time and time again, Israel abandoned the Lord and went after the Canaanite deities, Baal and Asherah, and other foreign gods. The biblical author uses strong language to describe Israel's idolatry. Um, you see it in Judges 2, 17, Judges 8, 27, and Judges 8, 33, where he says, they hoard after other gods. God would allow Israel to face tribulation as a way of punishment for their idolatry, but when Israel cried out to God, he was faithful to save them by rising up a judge that would lead them to peace. And this was the constant cycle, if you remember, of Israel's history. God would grant them peace through the leadership of a judge, but once the judge would pass away, they would fall away into idolatry again, and God would punish them under the hands of an enemy tribe until they would cry out to the Lord. And God would then save them again by the means of a new judge. So throughout this account, we see that despite Israel's reoccurring sin, God delivered the people repeatedly, which was a testimony of God's long-suffering, patient and faithful character. The story goes on as we see that Israel went from a people who cried out to the Lord in times of need to a people who eventually forgot the Lord their God. And as God gave them over to their ignorance, they progressively became more and more into a corrupt people. And we have arrived today in chapter 17 and 18 where we will see even more clearly, the downward digression of Israel from being a people led by God to a people with no king. So I've decided, uh, I'm sorry, I've divided today's section into three important points, as I usually do. Um, and, and it'll sort of help us out um, as we dissect the section. The first point you'll see in the, uh, the handout 
is the expressed viewpoint of the writer. So we're going to look into just sort of the, the way that the um, content is written out. And point number two is the subtle manner of the story. And then point number three, we're going to pull out the vital teaching of the text, which I believe is the tragedy of false religion. So let's look at the first point, the expressed viewpoint of the writer. And we'll start by reading uh, all of chapter 17. Um, it's a short passage. It's only 13 verses. So if I can have someone take uh, verses 1 through 6, who would like to read that out loud? And then, thank you. And then I'll have someone read 7 through 13. Who wants to volunteer for that? Thanks, brother. Okay, let's look at, uh, here we go, excuse me. Let's look at Judges 17, uh, starting with the first six verses. Thanks, Chris. Now, in, in comparison to the earlier parts of Judges, hopefully you'll notice that even though writing style is a little bit different, there's no refrain of Israel's apostasy, right, that, that cycle. No announcing of a new oppression, no central judge figure. The writer has now changed the way the story flowed since the beginning. And it seems that this was purposeful. Chapter 17 and 18, which is what we're covering now, seem to now be displaying both Israel's confusion and her depravity. So in these chapters, we see Israel wallowing in her own religious and moral mess. It is almost to say that the problem is not the enemy out there, right, that tribe that's, uh, that has taken over, as you've seen in previous chapters. It's not the enemy out there, but the cancer within. We're seeing the outcome of a nation 
who has disregarded the commands of God. Now we know that all, all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, right? But often it is hard to find the application, especially in passages like these. Um, however, there's a lot to take from these chapters. We must begin by first recognizing that these chapters, chapters 17 and 18, are descriptive. The story seems to begin and conclude with no moral application or religious judgment, right? We don't, we don't even get a verse that tells us that God was displeased about something. So it's kind of hard to pull out, you know, what was the point of this? Um, so the story is told, but how do we know the standpoint of the storyteller? What's his purpose, right? What's the point? Now I say that to say that careful observation of how the author tells this story actually provides us with a clear understanding of his intentions of telling it. In fact, we'll see that the author's style and manner of telling the story is as important as the story itself. So let's start by focusing first on some of the techniques of the author. And then we'll get into the teaching of what, what we can pull out from it. First of all, what is this story about in chapter 17? We see that the story begins, right, with a man named Micah who confessed to have taken 1,100 1, pieces of silver from his mother, but then he gives it back to her. She rejoiced that it had been him who had taken it, and she takes 200 pieces of it, 200 pieces of silver, gives it to a silversmith to have it made into a carved image or in a metal image, and, he, and she gives it to Micah. These idols that were made were then kept in his house, Micah's house. Micah makes a shrine for them, and he also makes an ephod, which was a priestly garment, and also makes household gods, and ordains one of his sons as his priest. So it's a strange situation, but it, it's almost, it almost seems as if Micah was creating his own temple of, you know, or, or, or a house of gods. Now, even though the author isn't explicitly stating his opinion on the matter, nor is there any statement that expresses God's disapproval of this, the author does express his viewpoint through certain statements made, and we're going to look at that. The author clearly declares himself in his use of the no king formula that you'll see in, in other chapters as well. And what I mean is uh, verse 6, right? In verse 6 it says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So he, he places that statement, and it says something about everything else that, that, that's being described. Notice that the author quietly right, indicates his negative take on Micah's house of gods by placing that statement, right? In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He places that statement immediately after his report of Micah's creation of the shrine and the idols. In other words, the author communicates that the whole book of Judges, he communicates what the whole book of Judges was all about. That if there had been a king during that time, he probably would have put a stop to Micah's godless nonsense. And this was an indication that Israel was always in need of a king or a savior. Uh, one who would meet the standard of the true God, Yahweh. Now, the story goes on with a Levite from Bethlehem who was a sojourner and seeking a place to reside and comes across Micah's house. And Micah offers him a job. We see that Micah offers him a job as a household priest 
ten pieces, he, uh, ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and his living. He offers this uh, in exchange. And the Levite accepts the job. Now you can look, you can read that, you can just simply read the description and think nothing of it. However, there are things to be considered. The statement that we read um, where it says, and he sojourned here, echoes what it says in Deuteronomy 18.6. And it almost suggests that the author is interpreting the present event as a parody of what Moses has instructed regarding the Levites. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18.6 through 9. Um, again, remember, uh, the Levite was traveling, it says, and he sojourned there, right? He was, he was, he was leaving his hometown, he was walking away, he was in, this, in the new land. Um, now look at, look, think of that in comparison to Deuteronomy 18, 6, 9. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, and if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel, where he lives, he may come when he desires... But here's the specific uh, direction or a specific command onto where he must go. I kind of underlined it there. It says, and he comes when he desires to the place that the Lord will choose, right? And verse 7 says, and ministers in the name of the Lord, his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. So according to these verses, a Levite may leave his place and sojourn any time to go and live, but live in the place that the Lord chooses, to serve in the name of the Lord like his fellow Levites, and be rewarded the same gifts as the resident Levites. However, we see, going back to our main text in uh, chapter 17, that this specific Levite, his conduct violates the Levite uh, structure, the Levite commands, right? Uh, his, intended uh, his intended destination is not the house of the Lord, but rather any place where he may find, right? As you read it in verse 8, uh, he doesn't join other Levites, but displaces another unauthorized priest, namely the son of Micah. We see that he does not serve the, the name of the Lord, but he does it in the name of Micah, right? He takes this job um, as a priest, um, but it's not serving the Lord, it's serving idols, right? It's serving Micah and his idols, and of course his pay, because he's getting paid for it. He does not serve at the place where the Lord is choosing, but a place chosen by man. He doesn't receive an honorarium prescribed in uh, Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 1 through 5, which you see here. This is, this is how his pay ought to be. It says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers, the Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due for the people. For those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of your, uh, of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. 
For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons, for a time. So, judging by the Levite in in our main text, uh, chapter 17, it seems that he had no passion for God and the instructions that were given to him, nor a sense of divine calling or a burden of responsibility, like a professional minister who followed a past of least resistance and waited for an attractive ministry opportunity to open up. That's pretty much what was going on. Not to mention that the Levite was made a priest by Micah, someone who was clearly unauthorized to ordain somebody. And this goes to show that both men, right, Micah, they, Micah and the Levite, they made a deal there. They were simply men, uh, they were opportunists. They were men who were making a business deal. Now let's look at point number two, the subtle manner of the story. Let, let's, uh, let's keep going with the story. Let's look at chapter 18, and we're going to try to read the whole thing. Uh, so I'll divide it uh, in a few sections. Let's, let's, uh, let's have someone read verses 1 through 10. And someone, yeah, that, sure, brother. It's interesting, you know, the, the way this thing is structured, especially with none of the cyclical stuff. Yeah. There is a little point in there which it, I've noticed before, and, and I think it might be a connection. If you go back and look at 6, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, Wow, that, that's a good observation. The, the, the 1100 is just a really strange number right. to find in those two chapters. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is. A question I have. Sure. Okay, so for N177, I'm giving a confusing line. I don't understand it. I know Christ was our priest. He is our priest. He's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. Judah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some commentary. Well, well the. Right. Yeah. The, the, right. Because the emphasis was so much on the Levite more than the Judah aspect of it. Uh, when I was reading the commentary, um, they they gave some uh, thought on, on it. Like one of the theories was that it was possible that there was like marriage that were like integrated there to both sides married and this is the result uh, he was the child of that that marriage but I, I, I left it out for that reason it is it is sort of yeah it doesn't it doesn't explain it but that's that's what I saw in the commentary I think I think that's a good uh, theory for it but that's one of the reasons why I left it out because yeah, it's, it's just not clear. Um, but I, I see why that would be sort of two different things. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at Judges 18. So who would like to take 1 through 10 and read that out loud? Thank you, Lucy. And uh, who would like to take 11 through 20? Thank you. 
and then uh, 21 through 31. Thank you. Okay. Let's look at, uh, hold on. Okay, there you go. Kiriath Jerem. Thank you. In Judah, on this account, um, that place is called Mahana Dan. I chose the wrong ones to read. I'm sorry. <laughs> Behold, is west of Kiriath Jerem. Thank you. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and metal image? Now therefore consider what we will do. You will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levi at the house of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and clan? in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the Eli 
and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. <laughs> wow. Um, so before this, it was all being led by Michael, who was not an Israel. And now Israel comes to join him, and they take it. And what yeah. they take is the very things that were not right, and they are Israel. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said, Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish. To the people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laosh at the first. And the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribes of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was, was at Shiloh. Thank you. <clears throat> so just to kind of summarize, this is a big, uh, long passage, but this chapter begins with the author again reminding us that Israel had no king at the time. And it was sort of a hint as to say to the readers that the following incidents is to be understood through the reality that Israel was not acting in accordance to the leading or the commands of Yahweh. So we see that the people of the tribe of Dan went out to seek a land to take over and make their inheritance. And they come across Micah and the Levite. And during their search for a land, they came to the land of Laish that was a peaceful people and filled with much resources and decided that they wanted the land. And so as they gathered their army to take the land, along the way they decided that they wanted the Levite as a priest for their tribe as they settled into their new land. Verse 19 shows the dialogue between a Danite and the Levite priest. The Danite said to the Levite, Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? In other words, the Danites offered him a better deal than that which Micah had offered. Uh, and verse 20 says that the Levite's, priests, the, the Levite's priest's heart was glad, so he was happy about the deal. And so he took the carved image, the ephod, and his household gods and left with the Danites. He just, he said, I quit, you know, and he went with the, with the new management. Uh, the chapter ends with the Danites taking over the land by burning it down, killing the people, 
rebuilding the city and renaming it, and setting up their shrine as their own local house, house of God. Now, as we read the story, verse by verse, the author seems sort of neutral as he relates the story to us. So we're, we're trying to, when, when you read it, you're trying to figure, okay, uh, God, where do you disagree here? Where do you agree? Where's your hand moving? You know, what, what, how do we apply this to our everyday lives? However, it, 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 seems, it seems like he's neutral. He's not giving his opinion the way, that, the, the way that it's written. However, if we look closely and carefully, the neutrality is only apparent. There is sort of a subtle manner of the story that needs to be considered. First of all, there's a contrast that the author seems to draw at the beginning and the end of the story. I want you to notice this. The contrast is the way verse 5 translates shrine in the original Hebrew as a household of gods for Michael's idols. And the way the final verse in chapter 18 speaks of the real house of Yahweh located in Shiloh. You see that last uh, verse here? So they set up Micah's carved images, or image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The author's point seems to indicate that the site at Dan, that, at Dan, that uh, house of the idols, functioned as an apostate challenge to the worship of Yahweh, which would have been at Shiloh. In other words, he, if you look at the contrast, um, the author is actually making a distinction between the house of idols or you know, idolatry, the, the ones that were made by the hands of men, versus the real one in comparison to that, which is the house of God in Shiloh. In other words, the author, even though it may not be explicit, was subtly hinting that there is a difference between what was going on in the story versus true worship, the true worship of Yahweh. And this is evident if you pay attention to these little, you know, hints that you see in the way that the story is written out. So that's one clue of, of sort of the opinion or the perspective of the author. Secondly, the author seems to keep a safe distance from the events that he's describing. So even though he's telling the story, He's sort of distant in certain key things, and I'll give you an example. You'll notice that the name Yahweh, which in our English versions would read the Lord, is only on the lips of the cast of the story. So when he tells a story, the characters' lines are the ones that are, 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 the ones that are calling their idol worship uh, unto the Lord, right, unto Yahweh. The cast, the cast often refers to the Lord even when discussing idol worship, right? However, the author, even as he narrates the story himself, he himself never uses the term the Lord, which is Yahweh, when he speaks about God. It is as if he wants no part of that syncretism, right? He's telling a story about a people who are merging uh, or, or referring to the true God, but are merging idolatrous ways of worshiping the true God. And, and he wants no part of that. He just wants to describe the events. Um, and, and so you see that uh, there's sort of a distance between how the writer is writing it, how he's telling the story, and the actual characters and how they depict God. By this, we see, again, more clearly, the stance of the author regarding these events. And this helps us to see the purposes behind the writing. It becomes much more obvious that although it's a descriptive account, God opposes these events 
And the author was trying to point that out. These were descriptions of an Israel who had disregarded the order of God, especially the Levite priest, as he forsook God's order for the priesthood and the Levite rules. And he chased opportunity and personal gain. And more importantly, we see vital, the vital teaching of the text, which was the tragedy of false religion, posing as worship of God, the true God. Which brings us to the third point here. If you look at the uh, handout, the third point is the vital teaching of the text. What is the text teaching us? I put next to it the tragedy of false religion. So overall, that point, right, the tragedy of the false religion, that ought to be the clearest teaching of this passage. Look at where look at where Israel has come to. In other words, and you can get a taste of Israel's bad theology in some of what's going on, uh, especially when Micah gets his idol stolen from him in verse 24. Look at verse 24 uh, in chapter 18. Right? He shouts at them. He shouts at them. He says, You take my gods that I, that I have made and the priests and the priests and go away and what I have left. Now any faithful true worshiper of, of Yahweh, would instantly see how Micah's cry, right? What he's saying, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and what I have left. If you understand true worship, you would see that that statement in and of itself is crazy. A God who can be made is simply a contradiction in terms. Not to mention a God who can't avoid being stolen nor defend itself. And Micah's question of, what do I have left, you know, after his idols are stolen? That question is insane. Because the reality is that even when he was in possession of his idols and the priest, he had nothing. Because of, apart from the true God, not only do you not have anything left, but you never had anything to begin with. The general theme of this narrative is false religion. A false religion that Israel establishes when synchronizing carven images with the worship of Yahweh. And I want to address a few points that we see even with this theme of false worship. First, I want to address the curse of God's judgment on those who partake in this type of synchronistic false religion. Deuteronomy 27, 15. Can someone read that passage? Curse be the man. So there's no doubt that the author of Judges had this, this law in mind as he penned the incidences in chapter 17 and 18. God saw idol worship as an abomination. And here's something that I think ought to be practical to us when we, when we think about uh, idolatry. It isn't as if God sets up these rules because he wants to give us busy work, right? Don't worship this, don't do that, don't create images. He's not creating busy work. This isn't just another rule in God's list of rules for us to obey. Idolatry actually speaks to the very issue of the essence of being a human. Okay? All man was created in the image of God. What this means is that we were created to reflect God's character. 
This is essential to being human in the true sense. What it means to be human is to, to reflect and be the image bearer of God. Tragically, as sin entered the world, our idolatry towards creature rather than creator has shattered this image of God in us. And this is the biblical principle that you become like what you worship. Now think about the things that we often fall into idolatry with, you know, whether if it's, you know, movies or whatever, you know, I don't know. You become like what you worship. And although we are still his image bearers, we become less of who we're created to be, which is humans made to reflect the image of God. And we become more like what we worship. So not only is idolatry a corruption to mankind, but ultimately it's a lying declaration of the character of God. Idolatry is serious. It affects us, but it also says something about God to the world. It's a lying declaration of the character of God. And God calls this an abomination to the Lord. And again, Deuteronomy 27.15 should have served as a warning not only to Israel, but also to us as well. This is why we ought to be concerned for our neighbors as they may be caught under the idols of our time or even the idolatry and false religion or even false forms of worship. Now here's the tricky part. This is, this is where things aren't as clear. Specifically in, the, in what we've read, even though Micah's cult right, of, of this house of gods, even though it appeared to be successful at first, right, his mother, you know, came up with the idea, you know, he obtained these idols, created a house of gods for himself, even though the cult of Micah appeared to be successful at first, we know the truth of Deuteronomy, right, what we just read, that God curses this kind of thing. In other words, Micah is living proof that it's possible to do ministry which exudes success in every way and yet still be under the curse of God's judgment. It's possible when you look at a church or a, a, a place of false worship and you think, wow, they're so successful. They have a lot of numbers. They, the building is beautiful. Things are in order. Everything seems to be great. It's possible, looking at this situation, that, that uh, an example like that would, would still be an example of, of, of a ministry that's cursed under God's judgment. Success in a material or financial or even a numerical sense can't be the final key in determining whether a ministry is under the blessing of God or the curse of God's judgment. I, I remember so many times I've had family members who are, you know, in different denominations um, where, I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with their, their, the way that they do church. Uh, but I remember a specific family member who would ask me, man, you know, um, this church here is, is, is doing great. And, and sh she knew where I stood in regards to the teaching of this, you know, the doctrine of the church and, and what went on in that church. But, but the, 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 the way that she determined the success of that church was, wow, you know, the Lord must be doing something because the church is packed every Sunday. Uh, you know, the, the music is tremendous. The, the lighting and, you know, everything else is so successful. Uh, and I'm over here during the time in a little church, you know, with a couple of members in it, but I believe that that church was faithful and was using the little number of people there to spread the fame of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and spread the gospel. And I think the Lord was using the small for the big, for the big things. But again, success in a material or financial or even a numerical sense, that can't be the key 
uh, in determining whether the ministry or, you know, the, whatever that ministry is doing is um, under the blessing of God or even the curse of God either. So size shouldn't determine whether the church or the ministry is, is on God's good side or God's bad side. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, in other words, uh, it needs to be determined by the Word of God. The Word of God. Right, correct. Yeah. So, again, the Word of God is what. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. It speaks low. This fall. God said to Israel, "Don't think that I'm choosing you because of the greatness of all you have done, because of the smallest of you." That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. That goes to show that uh, the outer appearance, so to speak, is is not enough to determine uh, God's blessing on on that ministry. So again, it needs to be determined by the word of God, right? what God has said, how God has instructed his people to serve in order to know whether God's blessing is upon a ministry. When it comes to serving God, we ought to be more concerned with faithfulness and obedience to God's word and let God determine the results of the way things ought to go. Okay, that's just one point. Secondly, we see the folly of false religion in the story of Israel. In this story, Israel is primarily condemned for syncretism, which is an act of merging the worship of the true God, mixing it with the false pagan worship. And verse 3 of chapter 17 shows that Micah's mother takes the silver and dedicates to the Lord, but does it by making the carved, carved images, which is not only an incorrect way of worship, but a form of blasphemy. And we can apply that today as the church seeks to avoid that which is unbiblical, right? The reformed, in, in, in the reformed tradition, the, re, the reformed principle of worship is often called the regulative principle of worship, which is a principle that Calvin taught that says that in corporate worship, we must, we must only do that which the Lord has prescribed in Scripture and avoid unbiblical practices and calling, calling it worship. Now, even though uh, there have been some disagreements on where or uh, what some of the points are in that principle. Nonetheless, the principle has helped keep the church from the lure of much false worship. However, right, we're still reforming, and as Christ continues to purify his bride by the Spirit's work, you know, we'll keep reforming until Christ comes again. And then finally, the author describes the tragedy of false religion in the final verses of our our passage in chapter 18, 30 and 31. It says, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, which is actually the name of the Levite, it's revealed, finally. And his sons were priests to the tribe of, of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Mike, Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So if you think about it, this setup of a place of worship for some idols 
sadly under the name of Yahweh, began as an idea in Micah's mother's brain and became a reality when Micah set up shop and finally to a tribe uh, called the Danites. Right? Now, tragically, tragically, this false religion even continues on in 1 Kings 12, 30 to 31, where it says, Then this thing, a golden calf, became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. So, you know, this, this pattern of false worship continued on throughout the scriptures. And again, that's the a, that's a tragedy of false religion. When it is left unchecked, it spreads like wildfire. As the world makes fun of us, Christians, for being so dogmatic and so uptight about sound doctrine, what is often overlooked is our concern for the purity of God's worship. Right? That's the point. That's why we have uh, confessions and, and creeds. And that's why we struggle to fight to uphold the, the, the pure doctrine of the word. So that this stuff doesn't spread. And we know it has. Uh, a lot of the garbage in other countries have been coming from us. Have been coming from the U.S. And so we as Christians must take seriously the worship of God. We must guard the truth of God's word, not only for our sake, but for the sake of future generation disciples, for our children, for the future of the church. And that's a task that's, that's been given to the church. Uh, I'm going to conclude here for the sake of time. I, I want to read a quote from a commentator uh, that, that uh, wrote a, a commentary on this passage. And he says, and I quote, the writer has suggested an antidote for false religion. We see it in uh, chapter 17, 6. And also in chapter 18, 1. And this antidote for false religion is that in those days there was no king in Israel. In other words, his argument is if Israel had only had a king back then, the right kind of king, he would have put a stop to such syncretistic nonsense. In short, proper covenantal control ought to stifle false religion. But how do we go about applying the proposed solution since the church in our culture does not have the same theocratic nation form as did Israel? After all, we don't have a king, do we? Of course we do. Who is Jesus Christ if not our king who rules us? Do we not see Christ ruling as king in Revelation 2 to 3 in his role of judge over and among his churches? And has not the shepherd king entrusted to under-shepherds, right, pastors, the task of ruling and defending his flock? Is it going beyond the text to hold that it teaches the necessity for vigilant discipline among the people of God in order to maintain the purity of worship and life? To that I say amen. Yes. And so uh, the point is uh, that this points to the fact that sin is ultimately the problem, but Christ is ultimately the solution. That's, that's, a, that's a key theme throughout the whole book of Judges. Um, and again, we see that Christ fulfills the role of, of a perfect judge, a perfect king, uh, in the way that these other judges could not. Um, and so this issue of sin and idolatry 
it's once and for all resolved on the cross with Christ, right? Although we still fall, we've been declared righteous through, through the blood of Christ, and, uh, and, and that is true conquering over these, these sin issues, these forms of idolatry and disobedience. That's true con- conquering. That's true ultimate uh, uh, defeating of these issues that um, the Israelites had. And so we, we find that all in the fulfillment of what Christ has done uh, for us on the cross. So again, may this account, right, in, in Judges 17 and 18, point to the fact that sin is the ultimate problem, but Christ is the ultimate solution. Amen? Okay, that uh, concludes 17 and 18. Um, I don't know if we have time for questions, man, but let, let's, let's, let's get to... Okay. Uh, well, this is a question Okay. As you know, the earthquake hit Ecuador last month. Wow. So she said, please pray for all it touched. They felt it for two to three minutes, but they didn't have any damage. They were scared, but grateful to God for safety. Wow, praise God. Okay. Yeah. Ecuador. Ecuador. They moved there. Okay, we'll pray for that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Two things. Uh, you mentioned that we become like what we worship. Yeah. Yeah. The scarab beetle is also called the dung beetle. Wow. There's no greater sign of death than the dung beetle. Wow. And you can see what they did with death in Egypt. Yeah. Bringing it forward to today, this is a society that worships sex. That's right. So we've become immediate gratification. We, we, we deal with immediate gratification, self-centeredness, and narcissism. narcissism. That's right. I think there's no better commentary on our society than that. That's right. So I, I agree totally that we become like the thing we worship. Amen. Yeah. And just one last thing in terms of that connection of the 1100, mm-hmm. there's something really going, interesting going on coming up in 19, yeah. which is you read it. I just pointed out. Remember we're talking about Micah the Levite yeah. from Bethlehem of Judah? Yeah. You'll see that 19 starts out a certain Levite yeah. from Bethlehem of Judah. Yeah. So now the connection gets even greater, and the sin becomes greater, greater. when he, he basically cuts his concubine apart. Yeah, and wow. It's this spiral that's going like this. Yeah, it is. It's a downward uh, decline. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, very good. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, let me close. Uh, Father, we thank you for this account, Lord. You've shown us a time when Israel had become shameless in their false religious expression and their conduct before you. And Father, we recognize that if you were to leave us without Christ, our true King, we too would do what seems right in our own sight, but wrong in your sight. Therefore, we thank you for saving us and forgiving us, and of course, revealing your word to us. And may you protect us from false worship and allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.